All right, here we are at the end of Matthew chapter 25. We're just a few days before the cross. Jesus had been rejected by the religious leaders in the temple. And when they were walking out, Jesus told his disciples, his apostles, that the temple would be destroyed. And we read back in chapter 24, verse 3, now as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why chapter 24 and chapter 25 is called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus answering these questions came in the remainder of chapter 24 and chapter 25, uh, 24 with sort of the events, chapter 25 with what it looks like to be prepared for his second coming. Uh, Today is our 10th week in these two chapters. Some of you have more of the attitude of, come on, get on with it, let's go, let's go, let's go. Some of you are like, why are you going so fast? So I'm probably in the second category. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. And today we're at the end of Jesus' teaching on the end of times, and, or the end times. And we're, he's going to be talking about, as we started last week, we're talking about uh, Judgment Day. And it's important because many people who think they're going to heaven are going to find out that they are not. And the title of our message is Getting Judgment Day. Day right, part two, of course, part one, if you were with us last week, uh, we began. And, and despite what many people think and say about Jesus, no one in the scriptures spoke more about judgment and the reality of hell than Jesus himself. And Jesus, interestingly enough, closes his teaching uh, with his disciples uh, on the end times and judgment day with a very controversial passage. Uh, because the main part of it is often denied, and the popular part of the passage is often misunderstood. And so last week we saw that Jesus had prepared everything in advance for his heaven-bound followers. Today, Jesus is going to point out who they are and who they aren't. So last week we looked at Matthew 25, 31 through 34. Let's read it again just to bring us into the next section. Jesus said, When the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, uh, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And the idea is he's going to rule and judge. We said that's what kings in the ancient world did. All the nations, we said each person, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And so the sheep are the people that are going to heaven. The goats are going to be the people who are going to go to hell. And we said that was the main point of this section. That's what Jesus is talking about. Very unpopular in our culture. Nobody really wants to hear much about it, but it's what Jesus taught. Verse 33, and he will set the sheep on his right, the place of honor, heaven, but the goats on his left, the place of dishonor, hell. Just wonder how many of you switched over to this side this week, just checking after I told everybody on the left that they were going to 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 hell last week. Uh, Then the king uh, will say to those on his right hand, again, the sheep, the heaven-bound people of God, come, you blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, we said last week, that is good news. And so the natural questions then become, uh, will you be one of them? Will you be one of the people who hear, come on in, you blessed of the Lord, and uh, why them? 
What's different about the sheep and the goats? Because remember, in this chapter, he's really talking about the church. He's not just talking about society at large. He's been talking largely about people in the church who thought they were going, but they were not ready. Now we move into this week's section, verse 35. For, now often in the Bible, that word carries the meaning of, or the idea of because. Okay, for or because I was hungry and you gave me food. Now, again, for a second, we're going to have to forget that we're Americans. Because for us, we're, we, hunger was very popular in the ancient world. Diets are very popular in our world, right? And, and we're, 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 not, we're not worrying about hunger. We're worried about are we going to, you know, how are we going to rate the restaurant that we go to? And how was the food? And, and you know, you're like, you're like, the burger, I don't like the way it's cooked. You know, is that your idea of medium? You know, it's not pink enough or, you know, whatever. We have all these different kinds of things that we do. And, and so uh, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. Clean water, very, very scarce in the ancient world. Now you go to the supermarket, 18 varieties of bottled water. And, you know, the big worry is what are we going to do when they get rid of the plastic? So that's it. We're, we're worried about different things that they are. They're worried about clean water. I was a stranger and you took me in. Another version says you welcomed me. Now inns back in the day were very, very dirty and very, very dangerous. And so people would really uh, try to avoid them if they could because there would be a lot of riffraff hanging out in there. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, it's like the hotel in the Lord of the Rings. That's what I think about uh, those uh, hotels and inns in the ancient world. And so Jesus said, you let me stay in your house. So now what happens when we go to a hotel? Um, I don't like the bed. It's uncomfortable. Um, the towels, I really don't, they don't, I don't, I don't like them. Or, you know, how do you turn the air conditioning down? And stuff like that. So we're, we lead a very, very different type of life. I was naked and you clothed me. Now, that was a sign of poverty. Many people lacked adequate clothing. You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you open up your closet and it's full of clothes and you go, I have nothing to wear? <laughs> and you're like a teenager who opens up a full refri- teenage boy opens up a full refrigerator and goes, there's nothing to eat, <laughs> right? So very different, very different. So we have to really think about this stuff. I was sick and you visited me. Medical care was terrible or non-existent. Uh, now we have great, comparatively great medical care. And, and although I think part of the idea comes with this is, you know, a lot of times you visit somebody who's in the hospital for a long time. And what do they really want to know? Will you come back? Will you, will you visit me more than once? Uh, I was in prison and you came to me. A lot of people stayed away from prisons because you never know. They could just throw you in. They didn't really need to have much of a, a reason for that. And so many have taken this passage to mean uh, that we are saved. What I mean by that, we have our sins forgiven. We have eternal life um, because of good works. But if you think about it for a second, to be honest, how many people really do any of this stuff anyway? Not many people do. And, and the scripture clearly teaches that we're saved by the grace of God. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We grab a hold of it through faith in Jesus Christ. So this section that we're in right now is what we would call an evidential section. In, in other words, that good works show the work of God in his people. One of the things we say around here sometimes is that we know God is at work when his people are at work. And so this is producing, Jesus is using this to present evidence. 
once again, we have to remember that we read la- just recently read and we learned last week that in verses 31 to 34, heaven was prepared for the people that are going there before any good deeds ever happened. Before any sins were ever to be forgiven were, com- were, were forgiven. So remember, this is the, the first century. Our modern conveniences have not been invented yet. And, and Jesus says, you served me. You served me. You did the things that were inconvenient for me. And maybe for us, that's the big takeaway. Am I willing to do the things that are inconvenient? Now, when you read the Gospels, if you're new to the Bible, that's, that's, that's fine. There's four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And throughout Jesus' ministry, those are the stories of Jesus' ministry, the different accounts of the things that he did. Jesus demonstrated works of love, works of mercy, works of compassion, and works of generosity. And he expects the same from his followers. You often say that, you know, somebody has a kid, they're like, oh, you think he looks like me? And, you know, God wants his kids to look like him. And Jesus wants us to look for, uh, to look like him. Also important to note here is these good works are illustrative. They're all stuff we should do, but but they're illustrative because we don't have any record of of Jesus inviting people into his home. We don't even have record of Jesus having a home to invite people into. We don't have record of of Jesus going and visiting people in prison. But he says this is stuff that we're supposed to do. And notice, interesting about this, these good works are not what we would call spectacular. They're not religious. They demonstrate simple and practical love. Simply, I, you know, oh, I gave you something to eat. I invited you in for, you know, for some warmth. I, I provided companionship to you. Basic, basic human needs. Also important to remember, we just said it, that here in chapter 25, Jesus has been talking about the church, not the building, but people who actually sit in the church and and the separation of the believers and non-believers in the church. So churches are going to be full of believers and non-believers. One of the things I'm a little bit more confident of that there's more believers percentage-wise in a church like ours is because you have goofballs like me who bludgeon you with the gospel every week. You're like, all right, all right, I'll believe. But, but, but a lot of places don't even talk about it anymore. It's not even, it's not even on, the, on the table anymore. And so Jesus is teaching us that, that much of the proof that someone has turned to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ, turned away from their sins and to God, and to try to sin less with God's help, and they're going to trust in Jesus instead of themselves, that they have become what the Bible calls a new creation, that they have a new heart, is seen in the little things of life, the little things we do for, for one another. Now, I hope that encourages you. If you have a willingness to serve Jesus, the kingdom of God has plenty of room for you and plenty of things for you to do. But as we come to verse 37, Jesus shows us that the sheep or the people who are righteous, they're the true people of God that are going to heaven, they're confused about something. They're confused about something. And they say this to Jesus, verse 37, then the righteous, those are the sheep, will answer him, will say to Jesus, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
when did we see you a stranger, stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? So they're confused. Now, these people have what we would call assurance of salvation. They've put their trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, but the surprise is not with their destiny. The surprise is the reason that Jesus gives. He's like, they're like, what? but we, we were supposed to trust in you, and we did, and yet you're making it look like we're supposed to do a bunch of good things here. Now, let's take it a little bit further. It's totally understandable. Let's suppose that someone died in 1400. They didn't see Jesus. What hope, what hope would any of us have? Right? Some of us like, we have no hope. But, right? but what hope did they have? They're like, Jesus, we, we never saw you. We didn't live when you lived. How could we have done these things for you? It only could apply to people who actually saw you. Not, not to mention that these are maybe what we would call little deeds. These are things like I think many followers of Jesus don't give a lot of thought to. Oh, hey, Joe's in the hospital. Great, I'm going to go see him. You know, oh, so-and-so, you know, they're, they're, they're sick. Oh, I'm going to make them a meal. You know, oh, something's broken at their house. Oh, let me give them a, let me tell them a text. I'll go over there and fix that for them. Stuff you don't even really think about. You, you, just, you just do it for people. Why is this stuff such a big deal to Jesus? That's because uh, Jesus is teaching us in, in no way did they believe that these good works would get them into heaven. They didn't believe that at all. It's just the way followers of Jesus live. Why, why, do, we, why do we live this way? Because we're different. Now, I understand some of us are weird. That's the two. But we're different. We're just different. We're not all about ourselves. This is how we live. We live to, to help uh, other people. We live to serve other people. That's why I always say that, you know, Christians should be in a service business at the top of the class, at the top of the class, because that is inherently who we are. James said this, James 18 through uh, 2, 18 through 20, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But, but do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so he's just saying, listen, you just can't go around saying you have faith if there's no evidence of it. We'll talk more about that in a second. Verse 40, I want to I read to us twice. Jesus says, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of these uh, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So let's go slowly. And the king, Jesus talking about himself, will answer and say to them, assuredly, some of your versions say, truly I tell you. Whenever you see that, uh, truly I tell you, assuredly, verily, verily, in some of the translations, you know what Jesus is about to say next. Not that everything he says isn't important, but this is very, very important. He says to them, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least, in other words, the people who seem to be, uh, to the world to be insignificant, well, you did it to one of the least of these brethren, and that's the key phrase. We're going to come back to that in a second. You did it to me. Now, I know that if you go out and you start helping people, people are going to take advantage of you. People are going to stomp on you. 
People are not going to repay. If you're expecting that, that's probably not going to happen. And, and so a lot of people, I guess, they get burned enough and they decide to play it safe and comfortable so, so they do nothing. That's no way to live. That's no way to live. Jesus said, you're doing it for me. You're doing it for me. Other people, they, they'll, they're willing to serve, but they're only willing to serve people who are rich, who are famous, who are popular, or they want to serve so people can see them, so, so, they, so, they, so they look good, and, uh, or they do it, they're willing to serve for, so, for some advantage for themselves. Now, today, there's a lot of debate over verse 40 among people who discuss such things. And it's actually, over the last 100 to 125 years, actually split and splintered much of the church. You say, what's the difference between a split and a splinter? Well, a split is they've just completely, they're apart. They no longer want anything to do with each, either other side. A splinter is they're coming apart. And they're, and they're beginning to splinter off and, and in, going into a split. And the debate is over how we understand Jesus' words when he says this, one of the least of these my brethren. Now, a lot of you have heard of, I would think, maybe not, of something called the social gospel movement or the social justice movement. And the movement itself is about 125 years old. Uh, There was some people before it, but typically the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And then it eventually became what was known in the 30s and 40s as theological liberalism. And a lot of the churches that you see that are closing are, were, were part of that. And they, people got away from the word of God and just wanted to just do good things for people. Became a little bit more, they, they would even admit this a little bit more like a social club and, and, and stuff like that. Now that's being repackaged again today. Cool, hip churches and we're all just about helping people. I get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about both sides of the coins of it. But what happened was the social gospel movement changed the meanings of the words where Jesus said, one of the least of my brethren, and then he said, you did it to me. Now, by far, it's not, it's not even close, the majority view throughout church history was when Jesus says, the least of these my brethren, that everybody believed that he was talking about other followers of Jesus. Th- those are the people that he was, in fact, talking about. Now, why would people say that? This is one for you teachers. we have any teachers here? We had a bunch in the last service. Uh, or, or students who were supposed to pay attention, and now they're actually going to have to try and pay attention. Um, least is a derivative of the word little. So for the teachers in the audience, it is a superlative, a superlative. The students are going, I never heard that word. Well, you probably did, <laughs> but, but you weren't paying much attention. And uh, let me give you an example of a superlative. Um, happiest is a superlative of the word happy. And so, and so least comes out of the word little. In Matthew 18, the word least was used of followers of Jesus and of children and people who were marginalized due to their lack of notoriety or due to their lack of perceived importance in the society. Also, In the New Testament, the term brethren or brothers, when not referring to biological siblings, refers to spiritual brothers and sisters. 
Now, it's important to remember that Jesus often makes a very close connection between himself and his genuine followers. Why? Because he lives inside of them. He lives inside of them. That's how you could do something for Jesus in the 1400s, even though he wasn't there, because you could do something for someone who Jesus lived inside of them. So there's lots of examples of this in the New Testament. Uh, Let me give you the most famous one. Uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul, the great New Testament Bible writer, is on the road to Damascus, and he's going out to persecute Christians and to persecute the church. In Acts 9, um, 3 through 5, where he meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, tells us this. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus is gone. He's gone. But who's Saul going to persecute? The church and the people of God. But Jesus identifies with his people so closely. Remember this, loved ones. Next time your, your boss is giving you a hard time or your coworker or somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, you're like, listen, man, you mess with me, you mess with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you say that. <laughs> you might lose your job, but you remember that, okay? So people mess with you, they mess with Jesus, okay? I was, I was talking to a guy recently. Uh, he was actually an attorney, and, and he said, uh, you seem like a guy who can take a punch. And I go, well, I probably, yeah. He goes, although... I wouldn't want to mess with the people you love. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you wouldn't want to do that. Like, like you, you work at Home Depot, you make my wife cry. I'm like, I, I'm going down to Home Depot. I'm grabbing you by the ear. I'm bringing you to the manager of the store. And I go, I want a formal apology. Here's a, here's a card. It's stamped and labeled already. You just got to sign it, man. I mean, just no, 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 no. You, you, somebody messes with you, they mess with Jesus. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now you say, what in the world are goads? Any cowboys in the audience? Okay, you got, you got boots? You got spurs? Yeah, you're not a cowgirl. <laughs> Those are the things you dig into horses. Well, I grew up across the street from a horse farm. They very rarely let us wear spurs. But, um, but so anyway... Uh, it's like, kind of like spurs. Goads were these long sticks that they would prod the animals with to get the ox to move and stuff like that. And Jesus is like saying to Saul, man, I have been, I have been prodding you. I've been prodding you. Is it hard for you to kick against it? Is it hard for you to go against it? So let me ask you a question today. Is God goading you? Are you fighting him? Do you know that he is after you and, he, and he's kind of going after you and say, this is wrong and that's wrong and that's, you know this, you know this, you know this, and you're fighting him and you are resisting him? You are not going to win. Take it from someone who lost in a big way. It still hurts to this day. Over 30 years later, 31 years later, you're, you're just not going to beat him. Now, so in, back to the Gospel of Matthew, the words least and brethren in Matthew's gospel, apply without exception to disciples and people who follow and who have followed Jesus and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I think it's fair to say that here, not everywhere, 
here. Jesus is talking about followers of Jesus in need being served by the true people of God. Here, not everywhere. If we assume this is still the tribulation period, if those of you remember back in chapter 24, then great sacrifices would be needed to serve people in need because there would, it was not a great time. So this is important. This is very soul-searching. And Jesus puts a lot of this stuff in here when it comes to the second coming. So we would really ask ourselves these questions. So we would really search our soul. Because, you know, people can sit in church for years and, and never come to the place where they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It, could Jesus be saying, really, or even they don't even want to serve Jesus, could Jesus be saying... Um, you know, the last time you sacrificed for a brother or sister in the faith is actually the last time you really sacrificed for me. Could Jesus be saying, you know, the last time you really loved one of my own children, a brother and sister in Christ, do you know that was really the last time you loved me? You know, Jesus quoted Isaiah and he said, well, did Isaiah say of you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What is that? They come into church. They know the songs. They know the prayers. They know the Bible verses. They know all kinds of other stuff. But Jesus says they will not lift a finger to help another person. They really don't love me. They're playing church. And Jesus challenges all of us with that. Are we willing to do inconvenient things for people? Now, Um, I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is teaching about uh, good works, or as we'll see, not doing good works, towards the family of God here in Matthew. But I don't think that's where the Scripture teaches it everywhere. I'll give you one example. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, the Apostle Paul says, And let us not grow weary while doing good. Some of you are growing weary and doing good. We can't grow weary. we got to stay at it. we got to stay at it. You see, here's the thing. If you're doing it for notoriety, you're doing it for who? Yourself. If you're doing it just to serve Jesus, you don't need notoriety. Yeah, you actually don't want it. Now, people say, oh, it's easy for you, Pastor Jim. You get to sit and talk in front of everybody all the time. Uh, listen, this part is short. It's getting ready. That's the work. And that's the part nobody sees. So, so I know what that's like. And I'm, you know, if you know me, I can get up and talk in front of people for, about anything for any length of time. But, but, but I got really, to really work it. So he says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. It's going to come back to you, loved ones, but you can't lose heart in it. And now look what he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, there is so much opportunity for what he's about to say. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all. That would be who? Everybody. That would be everybody, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I think Matthew's talking about people, and Jesus talking specifically in the church. Paul is talking about all people, but special preferential treatment to those brothers and sisters in the faith and in the church. So I want to talk a minute for this social gospel movement thing. 
because particularly for you young people, it's really having quite the resurgence right now. And so we want to be really careful that we understand what the, what the plus points are of it and what, where the, maybe some of the landmines are. Uh, again, it started about 125 years ago. Again, some stuff before. But the movement's changed over the years, and the language changes over the years. Uh, originally, it was a group of Christians who, start, who were very concerned with some of the social problems of the day. They were very concerned about unsafe work conditions, that's a good thing, right? They were very concerned about child labor and child labor laws. Good thing? It's a, it's a good thing. They, they were very concerned with racism. You know, Lincoln had, had, had done a lot of work in terms of, in terms of slavery and racism, but they clearly saw that we had a long way to go. And so these people were very concerned about that. Good thing? Very good thing. Very good thing. They were concerned about the, the growing availability of alcohol and various substances and the, and the abuse and the addictions that were happening. Good stuff? Very good stuff. But they became so involved in that stuff that they began to forget the Bible. And they began to look at that stuff as we're doing Christian stuff, agreed, but they began to forget theology. They began to forget what we might call biblical salvation. Now, it's important for us to realize whenever we talk about this stuff that, that, that sometimes God uses difficult times to discipline people. Not because he wants to hurt them, because he wants to make them better. How many of you came to faith through God's discipline? <laughs> Most of us, right? The rest of you are like, it hurts too much to raise my hand. It was so bad, <laughs> right? That's, that's how most of us come to faith is through God's discipline, sowing and reaping. And so we have to be very careful that we're not getting in the way of God's discipline by, by trying to help people or not informing people that this possibly might be the case. Now, let me give you an example. The scripture says this. If a man doesn't work, he should not eat. Now, let's understand what, that, what that, the essence of that is. That means if you have an able-bodied man or woman who, 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 who does not want to work, they are unwilling to work, God says, don't feed them, let them get a hungry belly, and maybe they'll think about going to work. Now, we have all kinds of stuff to throw in here in our culture. Addictions, mental illness, all kinds of stuff. It's not an easy thing. I'm not saying it's an easy thing. But we want to make sure when we have a, you know, a full-bodied, able-bodied person, they're like, I just don't want to work. I just might as well just stay home and collect unemployment, right? Well, you know what? Go out to Chick-fil-A with them, but let them pay. Because, because that, that, we don't want to get in the way of God's discipline. And today, it's now kind of a popular brand of Christianity to desire to help people, which we should because the apostle just told us we should. However, we have to be careful because for many, they throw theology out the window and it becomes all about the good works and that's all that it seems to to matter. We We might call it good thinking, bad theology. Good actions, 
bad theology. We also might call it a crossless brand of Christianity because they'll tell people, well, we don't want to offend anyone. Well, the gospel is offensive. We shouldn't be offensive, but the gospel is offensive. You're a sinner. You can't get to heaven without God. Some people are offended by that. To me, it's the best news I ever heard in my life. You mean he'll take me there? I'm in. I'm in, right? But, but for a lot of people, they are, they are offended of that, and, then, and they're offended at that. And then also what happens is we now see this blame shifting away from personal responsibility for a lot of people into it's all about your environment. Now, without a doubt, your environment has some bearing on, on who you are. Jesus can change that stuff, but it has some bearing. But to never take any personal ownership is a dangerous position. I mean, well, it's your parents' fault. It's your neighbor's fault. It's your teacher's fault. It's everybody's fault, but your fault. And if you don't take personal responsibility of yourself, things are really never going to be able to to change. And so we have to be, you know, wary of such things. The truth is that the scripture says that we are to remember the poor. The apostles had their meeting in Jerusalem and they said, hey, we we agreed on all this stuff. We just wanted to make sure you remember the poor. Now, determining who the poor is can be a challenge. But the scripture says to remember the poor. The, The scripture says to help widows and orphans. That stuff's in the Bible and it should be lived out by followers of Jesus. However, there's also judgment in the Bible. Something that, the, that the, the social gospel movement seems to be, in general, not all, but in general, giving little thought to. Now, as much as I disagree with any kind of good works theology, that you are saved by your good works, I totally understand their logic. I totally understand their logic. They start to think this way, that we need to do stuff to help people. I get it. I agree with them. I 100% agree with them. But that pr- produces, when, when, it, gets, when there's, it lacks theology, that produces a group of people who have theology who go to the exact other side. And they're like, we want to distance ourselves so far away from those people that we're not going to do much of anything. And that's wrong, too. We have to hold the tension. So what you had happen, in the, particularly in the early 1900s, is you had groups of people who thought, well, um, the kingdom of God, it's all in the future. It's all in the future. And then you had these other people who come along and they go, well, the kingdom of God is here and now. And maybe if we do more stuff, we can help usher in the kingdom of God, like we can hurry it along, right? No man knows the day or the hour. So what are both sides doing? Both sides are not holding the tensions of Scripture. They're not holding the tension of it. And so that's how you get into these things that are, that are just off. And, and so what happens is when you go to extremes, you lose what? You lose the gospel, and you lose helping people, something we don't want to go to at all. Now, if this subject interests you, here's a book some of us have read, like both of you look like you're interested in this stuff. Um, It's called When Helping Hurts, 
How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Um, They've actually written a number of books on various topics of this. Um, And for now, I will say this. um, We'll put this under opinion, and and then eventually we'll get back to Matthew. Um, To me, the debate should not be, um, do we help the poor? The debate should be, who are the poor, and how do we help them beyond the moment? Because... I, I know that I've talked to people like this, and, and I'm like, so what do you think about these church people coming to help you? And you're like, well, we have these little mini rallies before you church people show up where we're like, everybody be nice to the church people. They won't give us anything. <laughs> and I'm like, and then we leave and you make fun of us. They go, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And so and that, we, st- we would still do it anyway if they made fun of us. Who cares? They can make fun of us all they want, you know. But, but we want to learn how to help and, and not just for the moment. But typical of the church is there's always these overreactions to such things. And those who want to focus only on good works lose sight of you must be born again. But the other side wants to... D- to move so far away from what we often refer to as theological liberalism that they often ignore the commands of God in how to help other people. Jesus and the apostles taught this, and this this we can be clear on, that good works will not bring salvation. That salvation only comes by putting your trust in Jesus Christ but salvation leads to good works. And that's what he's going to talk about next. Verse 41. Then he, Jesus, will also say to those on the left side, those are the goats, going to hell, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now let's just stop here for one second. If you're not a follower of Jesus, super, super, super glad you're here. Super glad that you're here, man. Really, please. You can, you can come up. I mean, guy came up with me a couple Wednesday nights ago, and he was, you know, he wanted to argue this and that. And I was like, man, this is fun. Right? Right? <laughs> right. And I said, love to talk to you more. He's like, you don't hate me? I go, no. Are you kidding me, man? Right? And, and so he's like, I don't believe this stuff. Oh, that's fine. I didn't used to either, man. Let's talk. And so, um, and, and, and so I'm glad that you're here. But I want you to realize what Jesus just said. He said that, that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God does not want you to choose hell. He does not want you to. But that's what happens when you don't choose Jesus. He didn't make that place for you. He made another place for you, a wonderful, glorious place. We refer to it as heaven place where he lives. And so, and so he doesn't want you to choose hell. He wants you to choose him. Now, you total Bible geeks, you're like, you're, you're like, you love the stuff, like you read books and you read the footnotes and stuff like that, and you even highlight the footnotes, and you're like, oh, that's me, you're a geek. Okay, <laughs> I'm one of them too. <laughs> All right, you even have different colors, eh, okay. All right, so, so, so let, me, let me give you a term that you can read about 
Because you're like, well, man, what, 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 what's, what is this that, that he prepared the devil and his angels? Um, this is what Bible scholars call sublapsarian theology. Sub-lap-sarian, S-A-R-I-A-N. Some of you are like, I knew I should have brought a pen. That's why we have them in the seat in front of you. That's why you steal them all the time. I don't care that you do. I care that you chew them and put them back in the seat. That's what I care about. All right, back to the Bible. The greeter ministry is like, thank you. And the ushers are like, thank you. Okay, so, um, yeah, sublapsarian theology. And there's different aspects of it. There's subpoints. I won't bore you with that. That God originally, and that part of it is that God did not originally make a provision for hell until man rebelled. You can read all about that for your own on the internet. Let's go to morally more, really what's more key here. Notice what Jesus said here in verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed. Now let's go back to verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, those are the sheep, heaven-bound people, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from for the foundation of the world. So let me ask you the stupidest question I could ever ask you. Which do you want to hear? Which do you want to hear? Do Do you want to hear you're cursed or you're blessed? You're like, we know that one, Jim. Thanks. All right. But yet some people don't. But you know what? If we never tell them the bad news, then the good news has necessarily no, it doesn't really have any meaning. You know, oh, we just want everybody to notice what good people we are. Good luck with that one. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Now look at verse 44. Once again, they're not surprised at the destiny. They're more surprised at the reasoning. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Lord, when did we not help you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. So, if the least are followers of Jesus, and in Matthew's gospel, they are. The way anyone treats a Christ-indwelled follower of Jesus is very important. Very important. Jesus is not... Now, please don't mistake this. He's not saying, oh, just be nice to Christians and you'll go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. There's, There's plenty of people who don't, haven't put their trust in Jesus, who are very nice to Christians. Plenty of people. Some of you are like, yeah, my non-Christian friends are nicer than my Christian friends. Well, you probably need better Christian friends. But maybe that's true. Maybe that is true. Notice Jesus doesn't say they did anything wrong. They neglected to do what was right, which has led a lot of people to say, by taking, pulling this out of the context, that Jesus' is teaching works righteousness. Is he? The answer is no. If that was the case, the righteous sheep would have just said, Jesus, of course we're going to heaven. That's why we did it. <laughs> you know, just a couple visits to the 
prison, a couple visits to the hospital, a few meals here and there. Of course, that's why we did it. And remember, it's important to remember that chapter 25 is not about how we get to heaven. Chapter 25 has, and the end of 24 and 25 has been about being ready for the second coming. And many people who would say that they are Christians are not. It's interesting when you, when you read the Bible, and you have to learn, how, it's, it's a book you really have to learn how to read. And, and the New Testament letters provide a lot of definitions for. So after you go through the four Gospels, then you go to Acts, it's the founding of the early church, and then once you hit Romans on, you get into basically the letter sections where the apostles are writing letters to churches. And so what happens is the, the, these letters are providing definitions for us. They're explaining things to us like faith and love. What does Jesus do? He provides pictures for us. And so a lot of times you watch what's happening in the Bible and you're like, I don't get it. And then you read the letters and you're like, oh, that's what was going on. And so, for example, the apostles write in their letters about loving the church that Jesus died for. If you were here Wednesday, you heard this. I think it bears repeating again. A lot of people say they're Christians, but they don't love the church. Why? I don't like the people. That's not why we love the church. That's a secondary reason. We love the church because Jesus died for the church. We love the church because Jesus loved the church. Think about the next time you can't put up with a brother or sister. You're like, Jesus put up with me, put up with you. We have to put up with one another. See, that one got an amen out of someone. So, so in the letters of the apostles, we love the church that Jesus died for. In the gospel, Jesus dies for the church. He gives us the picture and they explain to us what's going on. So good works done for God's true people reflect where we are in relationship to the kingdom of God, the family of God, and Jesus Christ himself. Now, some of this stuff is just tough to hear, but we have to realize that Jesus wants you and I to go to heaven. And so we have to put our trust in him. And some people are just like, well, you know, just, can I just say a prayer? There used to be a lot of that for a lot of years, and we realized that a lot of people fell away from the faith. Why? Because things got hard. Things got very, very hard for them. They expected most people were not coming to Christ to be saved from their sins. Most people were coming to Jesus for a better life. Well, if, if, you got, if you were guaranteed a better life by coming to Jesus, wouldn't everybody come? I mean, everybody would. You'd see your friend. You're like, hey, you were driving a beater last week, man. You're driving like a $150,000 a year car, man. What happened? Well, I put my trust in Jesus, bro. <laughs> right, right? <laughs> that's, that's the way people would be. People would be like, wow, look at that. Man, that, that house you bought. I thought you were broke. I am, but Jesus, man. <laughs> <All right? laughs> if, if that was the case, everybody would put their trust in him just for what they could get out of him. But here's, Jesus has to really kind of hit us with a lot of this stuff 
so we really understand where we stand with him. And a lot of the stuff has to be hard because it has to shake us out of our boots. To fail to serve Christ's people is to fail to serve Christ. And it's an indication that you might not belong to him. True faith is seen in love and worship and obeying the word of the Lord, in helping others. And what did the Apostle Paul say? Especially those in the family. Especially those in the family of God. That's part of how your conversion will be seen. Again, there's a tension here. The basis of judgment is not just a verbal procession, profession. You know, people say, well, I know, but it says in Romans, you just say in your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, but when you said Jesus Christ was Lord, that means you were saying that Caesar was not. You could be killed in the Roman Empire for that. You could be tossed in jail for that. And so very, very different than, than, than our way of thinking about, about something like that. So the basis of judgment is not just a verbal profession, but also a practical evidence of conversion. Now, if you don't know what that is, it really means a practical evidence of God's work in your heart. People are going to you who know you, who are, especially those who are not Christians, are like, dude, you're different. There's something really different about you. You know, or like, oh, you don't want to go out and party with us like you used to. Or they're like, you're a do-gooder. When people tell me I'm a do-gooder, I'm like, thank you. And like, why do you want to be called a do-gooder? I'm like, because I don't want to be a do-batter, man. <laughs> right? I don't want that. And so, and so there's evidence of conversion. I went to a party one time, and, and, and a girl that I knew from college said to me, I know what you are, don't try and convert me. I go, that's theologically impossible. I can convert you. Only God can convert you. I can only tell you the good news of the gospel, and then somehow there can be some sort of a divine interaction between you and God, and God will change you from the inside out. So basically, we want to ask ourselves in a passage like this, does does compassion of Jesus, does the compassion of Jesus towards his own people flow through us as a reflection of our response to Jesus. That's important because the way we respond to Jesus is what determines our eternal destiny and shows whether we have put our trust in Jesus or not. Verse 46, he says this, he ends the chapter, and he said, And these, talking about the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment. Some of your versions say eternal punishment. But the righteous, the sheep into eternal life. Now, here's the truth of the matter. If I wanted to come to you every week, tell you a bunch of yucks, have a cool band, cool presentation, tell you that there's no such thing as hell, tell you, tell you that um, you know, all you need to do is good stuff and Jesus will be cool with it all, um, I'll tell you one thing, we wouldn't be meeting in this building. We wouldn't be. People would flock in droves to it. Especially telling people there's no place like hell. No, they, they would flock in droves to it. And a lot of people would really, really like me now. I know some of you really like me. Some of you send me cards and emails all the time. Thank you. 
Send one to one of the other people here who helped Lod do stuff too. Right? But by the way, I saved them all. I saved them all. Print the emails out, save them all. And, and so, um, but, but people would love me now. Everybody would love me now if I told them all those things. But they would hate me for all eternity. You know why? Because they would be in hell. And guess what? I'd be there too. I'd be there too. Most people today oppose this doctrine um, of, of hell. Uh, listen, I wouldn't say most people are really, really like it. I mean, if you like the, seriously, if you like the idea of people going to hell, you're sick. <laughs> There's something wrong with you. You know, like little kids. Remember when we were little kids, you know? Somebody said, go to hell. And you'd be like, I went there and your mother said you weren't home. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Some of you have said that. (laughs) I mean, seriously. I mean, I, I have a few friends who like the idea of people going to hell. I'm like, you're sick, man. There's something really wrong with you. You need help. You need counseling. But see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter that people don't like the teaching. It doesn't matter that you and I might be uncomfortable with it. It matters. It's what Jesus and the apostles taught. That's what matters. So it is the reality. And notice both destinations are conscious and eternal. It's not heaven and annihilation. It's not, oh, some get to go to heaven and some just go in the ground and that's the end of it. That loses the gospel. No, it, it's, it's, it's two destinations, heaven or hell, only two. Not heaven, hell, or purgatory, just heaven or hell. And this is the last of Jesus' teaching here in that, of, of Jesus in Matthew before we get into the passion, before we start to go into the last final hours of Jesus' life. And isn't it interesting that the last Thing he's teaching us here in Matthew's gospel is that there's only sheep and goats. There's only two destinations. Why? So you make sure you're going to the right place. And so you and I go out to people we know and we love and as kindly and as winsomely but as honestly as we can we tell them as well So the most important thing anyone can do is to respond to Jesus with faith and trust, to become a follower of Jesus and part of the family of God. So interesting, it's not gross sin that keeps people out of heaven. It's a lack of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes to you today and offers his life to you, his perfect life in exchange for your sin his perfect righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. How will you respond? Soon, as we go through Matthew's gospel, it's only a matter of days and hours now for him. Soon Jesus will hang on the cross. He will give his life on the cross in your place for your sins. And Jesus will be all of the things that we just saw. He's going to be arrested at night. It's going to be trials all through the night. He's going to go on the cross in the morning. It's going to go into the early afternoon. And Jesus is going to be hungry. 
and Jesus is going to be thirsty. Jesus is going to be alone, and he's going to be treated like a stranger. He even cried out to his own father for help. Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his own father wouldn't answer. You know, for the Romans, the cross was a picture. They, they did it publicly. So, so a, a, a father, I've got two boys. A, a, I would take my two boys, and I would say, that's what happens when you cross Caesar. Don't do it, son, because you'll end up like that guy. And to add to the picture and to add to the shame, it is known that they often crucified them naked. And there, the pure, holy one of God hangs there naked or scantily clad, and people will watch. Why was he hung there? For the sickness of our sin. And he will be cast into the prison of death for all of our sins. You know, I get to do a lot of fun things as a pastor. I get to do a lot of heartbreaking things. I call this the, the spiritual roller coaster of life that I'm on all the time with this thing. And um, one of the really fun things I get to do, I do in uh, this month actually, is when I interview the kids that are being promoted to their next grade of, of school. I love to do that, and I love to joke around with them. And... Um, one thing I will question I will ask them is I will say, now some of you haven't had your interviews yet, you're going to feed your kids the right answer. And so, so I'll say to them, um, can you tell me something about Jesus? And they will give the typical answer, most of them, that most people you meet out on the street will give. And they will say this, he died on the cross for our sins. To which I will look them in the eye. I can stare down a six-year-old man. I can. And I will say, let me ask you this. No, I don't say that. (laughs) You punk. (laughs) I'll say, all right, he died on the cross for our sins. Did he die on the cross for your sins? To which most little kids, young kids, school-age kids will say this. No, Pastor Jim. He died on the cross for our sins. My dear friends, true conversion happens when you are able to say, he died on the cross for my sins. True conversion happens when you are able to say, if the whole world was perfect, he still would have had to come and die for my sins because I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And for all who are willing to take that step of faith, Jesus promises eternal life in heaven where the book of Revelation tells us that we will no longer be hungry. We will no longer be thirsty We know we will no longer be lonely. We will be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying or tears. We will be freed from the prison of the presence of sin in our lives. But better than ever anything else better than any of that he will be there jesus will be there 
So what do you want to hear from him, friend? Do you want to hear cursed? Or do you want to hear blessed? Do you want to hear you never did anything for my, my own people? Or do you want to hear well done, good and faithful servant? Your love for my sheep was evidence to the whole world that you truly belonged to me. Well, let's pray.